since that moment, 10, 11 years ago, it's left every other product in the dust. So it really doesn't matter how you're running it. I almost feel like if they even tried to blow it, they couldn't. That's how popular it is right now. This is The Playbook, where I give you access each week to the world's greatest athletes and executives about their personal and professional playbook and what has made them champions on and off the field. This is The Playbook. I have a multipreneur. This is someone that can do anything for everyone. He is obviously Mike Florio, American sports writer, radio host, television commentator, also writes for, and I think creates and owns profootballtalk.com, which is one of my favorite hosts and daily NFL talk shows, PFT Live on Peacock with Chris Sims. Welcome to The Playbook, Mike. I love the term multipreneur. I'd never heard it before. I'd never considered it before. And uh, I, I, I like it. I like it. I'm going to start using it anywhere and everywhere I can, jamming it in inappropriately where it otherwise doesn't mesh with the context, just so I can say multipreneur. You know, it's funny because I they had noted me as a philanthropist, and I said, I'm not a philanthropist at all. I'm a philanthropist. Uh, you know, I ran Lee Steinberg Sports Entertainment, partnered with Warren Moon in a global sports marketing company. So I always said, I've just pimped out so many celebrities and athletes for charity. Don't confuse a philanthropist with a philanthropimp. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I've learned my own. Um, you know, you are probably one of the foremost experts in the, the most popular sport two to one, especially in America, uh, the NFL. And, you know, your conversations to me are not only stimulating, but very insightful. And you have a new book, which is, you know, aligned with the play book. It's the Playmakers and, you know, comes out in mid-March, March 15th to be exact. But it, it deals with an issue that I've really honed in on. Um, and it's, you know, some people, some entities, companies are successful despite themselves. And I think that's really, you know, with your book uh, is the story of the modern NFL that can't get out of its own way, which I think is obvious, but it also can't stop making tons of money. And, you know, there's some interesting aspects. What have you learned, you know, throughout the year, not just about the NFL, about why certain people, which we see in the NFL as well, certain companies which we see related to the NFL and especially the NFL, even though they seem to stumble over themselves every chance that they get, end up making so much money. Well, when the product at its core is so popular, when the demand for it continues to increase and increase, when it demonstrates an ability to pull together a live audience of Americans and really beyond, simultaneously like nothing else can in this day and age there isn't a single other property i remember when i first started getting into the tv side of it american idol was the one show that that could do what the nfl can do and american idol was the number one show on tv through 2009 2010 ish right when i joined nbc and it was a big deal internally when Sunday Night Football leapfrogged American Idol to be the top primetime show. And since that moment, 10, 11 years ago, it's left every other product in the dust. And you look at the ratings for the late Sunday afternoon windows on CBS or Fox, the Monday night national broadcast, the Thursday night broadcast, although that's going to change with Amazon, I know, but 
when you talk about three-letter network, broadcast TV, there's nothing else that pulls people together. People love the product. They can't get enough of it. So it really doesn't matter how you're running it. You know, I make the Brewster's Millions reference from time to time, and I realize there aren't many people old enough to even understand what that is. But yeah, <laughs> thank you. But I, I almost feel like if they even tried to blow it, they couldn't. That's how popular it is right now. And to that end, part of the popularity not is only the on-field content, which is extraordinary, the best real-time TV, the original real-time TV, but it's all the B-roll. It's all the background. And now with fantasy and gambling being played into the aspect of this continual growth of an audience of a community that has national loyalty and now cross-loyalty per player, it is just an amalgamation, in my opinion, of momentum. And there's so many diverse interests, um, but yet you give some interesting insights uh, on the different scandals, the different political aspects. Uh, and, you know, I've been in this game a long time like you. I still think we haven't seen the biggest scandal uh, when we finally realized, you know, I know John Gruden was kind of on the outskirts of the Washington, well, I'm call them the Redskins, but you, you know who they are, the Washington, whatever they call themselves. Uh, but Dan Snyder in that group, uh, I can't wait till we find out what's behind the kimonos uh, of some of the ownership and, and the stories. But going off of historically human nature, because that's why I think there's so many scandals past and present. It's just human nature of putting a whole bunch of rich young people together and rich old people together that own uh, their contracts. You know, what are some of your insights or nuances that you have seen that have, you know, really utilize the scandals to fall forward or trip onto success? Well, it really is a fascinating business model when you take a step back. Multi-billion dollar football operations with, from most teams, state-of-the-art technologies and people specifically hired for different jobs. And it's all aimed at putting together the best possible product on the field every Sunday, Monday, Thursday, or whenever they play a game. Every team, though, except for the Packers, who have a stock system, which isn't really stock in the sense that you can make any money off of it. You can just say we without looking like you're just any other fan. But you have a system of basically monarchs slash oligarchs who own and operate these teams and hand them down from generation to generation or pass them along to a sibling or whoever when the owner dies. And there's just an inherent dysfunction to that approach when you have one person who is ultimately in charge of a team and can make decisions about a team and the NFL wants it that way they went through some stuff in recent years with the Titans with the Broncos about making sure there's one person who's in charge of the team at any one time and I don't know if that's good for the sport to have one person in charge of a team at any one time because sometimes you have bad decisions made by that person who is used to being surrounded by sycophants used to getting what he or she wants used to doing what he or she wants to do and will push back against any sense that someone else is trying to get that person to do what they want that person to do. I think that's one of the reasons why the Brian Flores lawsuit came to fruition. I think that the owners, the oligarchs slash monarchs don't want anyone telling them how they should go about making decisions when it comes to hiring coaches. And they resent it, even if it's the league that binds all the teams together, that's trying to get them to do it. So that part of it, I think, is responsible for a lot of the dysfunction that happens at the team level. It kind of sets the tone for organizations that go off the rails. 
but you're right. It marries the, the, the young players who have been coddled their whole lives for the most part and never told they can't do things. So they're used to doing what they want to do with the older owners of the teams who have that same day a mindset. And it just creates, I think, the situation where these things happen, but, but none of them that have happened to date have slowed the NFL down one bit. And with the increase in the valuations of the teams, it's interesting because just like our economic system, which is going to go through the greatest transition of wealth, this transition of wealth will be a microcosm of the ownership in the NFL. As you, you know, have the women in America having great wealth here in the next 20 years, we also will see with that one person ownership, many more women owning uh, multi-billion dollar franchises and have great control and they may or not determinative upon this oligarchy or monarchy they may or may not have the passion uh, that it takes uh, to create a winning team or a successful team economically like you said I think it's Brewster's million you I don't you can't do anything to decrease the value of your franchise just because of the limited commodity that it is but how do you see the transfer of wealth uh, or the generational transfer that's going to occur in the next 20 years affecting the ownership uh, of the old boys club. You've touched on something, David, that really has crystallized for me the past several weeks, as we've seen the Washington commander's situation continue to percolate in Congress, as we've seen the Brian Flores lawsuit, which has the racial discrimination aspect combined with the argument that the owner of the team, Stephen Ross, offered $100,000 per loss in 2019, so that the team's draft position would be improved in 2020. We're at a point now, and it's only going to get worse because the franchise values are going to continue to go up and up with the proliferation of legalized gambling. We're at a point where there aren't many people who can satisfy the NFL's minimum requirement of owning 30%. You got to, when you buy it, you got to write a check for 30% right out of the gates. You got to have that. So if the team's worth 4 billion and you want to buy the Broncos, you got to come up with 1.2 billion. Sight unseen, that's it. Here you go. And you got to have the money to run it. And there's fewer and fewer people who have that. And and what bothers me as a lifelong football fan is that the only requirement for owning a team is do you have enough money to pay for it? Not are you going to be a good steward of a franchise about which thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people feel very strongly. They're putting their money and their passion on the line every week. Do you know anything about football? Will you be a good owner? Will you be a good partner to the rest? No, all that matters is what's the highest bid? Does this person have the resources to satisfy that bid and run the team appropriately from a financial standpoint? And the rest of it, who cares? Who cares if the person doesn't know what they're doing? There are owners who like that. Owners of other teams like it when some bumbling idiot buys a team because that's just a team you can cross off the list. Don't have to worry about them anymore. They're not going to be competitive. And that's not good for the sport. I think that the aspiration should be, yes, you need to have the resources, but you need to have something more in order to get the 24 votes from the 32 total teams to authorize that transfer. So it's going to get harder to do. That's the bottom line, because it's going to be more and more expensive to buy teams. And we're going to have more and more of these guys who come in who who screw everything up because they just they had enough money to buy the ticket. And once they buy the ticket, they can do whatever they want. I think you nailed it there. And, you know, you have a wide spectrum of knowledge. You know, one of the things that I've been blessed with in my career 
from having different angles of being a corporate sponsor by running Samsung in my 20, you know, early 30s to Lee Steinberg to then the sponsorship side. I've seen the business from every angle and the sport. Uh, I was even an average Division three college football player. So I've seen it from that side, which is mostly lying on my back with Christian Okoye running me over, something like that. But from the boardroom to the locker room, uh, from draft day to the Super Bowl, media has changed everything. Uh, you're, you've been around the game like me. Nobody was at the combine. Nobody was at the draft. I mean, look, even the first Super Bowl, it wasn't sold out. Uh, but now this media aspect, everything's a huge event. I mean, even during COVID in Cleveland, the draft was an extraordinary event in the middle of rain and cold and COVID. It has so much power. You're part of that media uh, collision, I would call it. How have you seen this media aspect create entities, platforms, and businesses within the NFL that you and I both had never imagined anybody would even show up to. Now you have an entire series related to it. Well, the media has grown so much as it relates to the NFL because the customers want it. It's that simple. That's always been my guiding light, 20 plus years of running profootballtalk.com. What are people interested in? What would I be interested in as the consumer of news, information, analysis, et cetera, about the NFL? Okay, that's what I'd be interested in. I assume other people are going to be interested in that too because I'm a fan, they're fans. That's why I think the media has grown so much. There's so much appetite for more, especially in the offseason. The confluence of the draft as it's grown in popularity and the ability of fans of every team to say, hey, maybe this is our year because we're going to get the right player who's going to turn us around and make us into a perennial contender. You throw in free agency, how that's grown starting in the mid-90s. And fantasy football, as you mentioned earlier, how people are interested from the moment their fantasy season ends. What decisions do I have to make about my next fantasy season? Constantly looking for information about that. Gambling thrown on top of it. The media is a product and is there to satisfy all that natural interest. And for me, frankly, one of the, one of the most fascinating developments has been and it isn't just a football issue. It applies in every other major sport. The leagues and the teams developing their own media platforms, their own networks, their own websites, hiring journalists to cover the entity that is paying them to cover that entity. And David, I'm telling you, there aren't many people that ever even stop and say, something's wrong with this. People get mad at me when I say that because they either work for NFL Network or work for one of the teams, or they're otherwise in the media and they say, don't, 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 don't complain because it creates more jobs for everyone. So I have less competition for the jobs I'm trying to get. And if I ever get laid off from the job I have, maybe I can go work for NFL Network. So people get so upset when I say there's something wrong with this picture. But what it does is it makes the NFL so comfortable in the subtly or otherwise slanted coverage that it enjoys if you try to be truly independent and if you're connected to a broadcast partner, you're jumping on the third rail pretty quickly because the state owned media otherwise isn't going to touch that issue, whatever that issue may be. A lot of the stuff in my book, the state owned media either just did perfunctory coverage or didn't even mention it at all. And they want that now from everybody, especially from their partners who have their own media operations. Yeah, it is remarkable, the control of the statistics and 
the demographics and other things that they don't want us to know about. I was at the Super Bowl with, you know, Warren on a panel and it was a hosted by, covered by NFL panel and it went sideways on equity and inclusion because even the state-owned media couldn't help themselves but ask questions. There was no way around, you know, challenging, you know, what exists today in inclusion uh, and equity, you know, from my business partner, Warren Moon, who obviously uh, is very quiet about the first six years of his career, uh, you know, when he was forced into Canada with the obvious talent to play in the NFL. We want to brush away a, a lot of the history as well. Last, last question, because it just, to me, puzzles me as well. Roger Goodell, who, you know, obviously is paid very well and has done a great job working for the owners. Um, but it seems to me there's a lot of obvious on the PR and marketing side, decisions are made. I'll use, for example, the Barstool relationship. It just seems like he just falls, you know, he, he's so above what seems to be every time Portnoy pokes him, he, you know, makes a decision that he's just builds Barstool and Portnoy's brand and diminishes the NFL brand a little bit. It's not going to kill him, but, you know, what is your take on the commissioner's role and responsibilities and, you know, his decisions in the branding of himself as a decision maker? I remember back during the lockout in 2011, David, I was getting ready to interview the commissioner because, well, in times like those, the commissioner is very, very available to spread whatever message needs to be spread because they're trying to get people aligned against the players and to line up behind what I sometimes refer to as big shield. And I was approached, contacted, whatever, by one of the PR people at the NFL at the time. And that person tried to sell me on this notion that the commissioner is the commissioner for all constituencies of football, all levels of football. It's like, come on, come on, man. The commissioner is the constituent or the commissioner has one constituency, excuse me. The commissioner has 32 individuals who decide, does he remain employed and how much does he get paid? And that's who he's serving. He's not serving anyone else. And one of the reasons he makes so much money is he's the one that stands there and offers up unpopular and or not credible comments, positions with a straight face. He was peppered with questions about the Washington scandal and why they didn't make the information available that resulted from the 10-month investigation. And his explanation is ludicrous. But he delivers it. He takes it. He gets through the moment and he earns his money that way. So when you understand what the commissioner really is, the commissioner is the person who takes all the crap that the owners would otherwise have to take for any unpopular decisions, trends, realities of the sport. And he's perfectly suited to be that pincushion. He can do it. But the other side of it is there, there are aspects of the business. And someone in the TV business told me years ago, that the issue isn't necessarily the commissioner right now, it's with the people around him. And that maybe he doesn't have the best group of lieutenants to help him push the business where it needs to go, but it's Brewster's millions all over again. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. For the owners, if the number one priority is make sure someone else is taking the heat for the things we do, then the commissioner is doing a good job. And, and look, look, I don't, I don't want to minimize what the commissioner's done. I mean, but, but th this came up in 2017 when Jerry Jones, the Cowboys owner, was upset 
with Roger Goodell over how they treated Ezekiel Elliott when he got suspended six games, was never sued, was never arrested, and they thought it was a big farce and it hurt the team's chances. And Jerry Jones decided to go after the commissioner when the commissioner was negotiating his current contract. And the argument was pretty simple. There's a lot of people out there that can do this job. For the most part, you're standing there guiding that, that ship in clear open waters. There's a lot of people that can do it. But when the controversies pop up and the owners want to go run and hide behind the curtain, that's when the commissioner really earns his money. So when you think of it that way, who's his only constituency? What's he there to do? And does it suit the interests of the folks who don't want to be reviled? They don't want to be caricatured on the back page of the New York Post as the one who's making the bad decision. That's why they pay Roger Goodell, and that's why they have him. And back to your earlier points, as the sport grows and develops and evolves, is it going to be good enough to have a traditional commissioner, or will the NFL need to have a CEO who leads the the organization is it so big that you need someone from the industry of ceos to be that executive who understands how to spot the problems how to navigate how to deal with the political landscape and how to delegate to the specialists who make up the class of senior vps that report to the ceo of the nfl and and that may be where the next commissioner comes from this this idea that you're going to grow someone from within the front office or pluck someone from a team and make them the commissioner that may end whenever Roger Goodell walks away. Yeah. The assistant commissioner upgrade uh, may not work anymore. And I will tell you, as you're describing the new role as the CEO of the NFL, I dreamed about being president when I was five years old and I changed my mind for many facts that you probably know. And I share uh, but as you were describing that job initially, I'm like, maybe that's something I'd throw my uh, hat into the ring. And then you started describing it again. I'm like, no, more like the presidency. I'm not really interested. I think this interview uh, is an illustration by far of why you need to grab playmakers, because the insight and the perspective and the knowledge is incredible. We don't get this anywhere. We have you know over a thousand episodes. And I love someone that really knows their shit excuse my language but you really do mike and it's such a pleasure to speak with you i love your perspective and the insights that you've given us can't wait to read the playmaker book please join me on my other shows man you're incredible thank you so much mike florio here with david Meltzer.